0: Good to be here with you all this morning to worship with you together. I was reminded when uh, Joe mentioned uh, this church uh, receiving support from Home Missions, I had the privilege of uh, filling the pulpit back, I think, 17 years ago when you all were meeting in the YMCA across town. So uh, I think I've been back a time or two since then, but it's good to be with you all again. Uh, if you would open your Bibles with me, uh, our New Testament reading will come from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the holy word of God. Let's give it our careful attention as uh, I read it. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And then please turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3, our sermon text. Ecclesiastes 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war And a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken. Uh, We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might know eternal life in your son, Jesus Christ, that we uh, might have fellowship with you and turn from the darkness to your glorious light. We pray that your spirit would be among your people this morning. We pray that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that... Uh, that we might have salvation and life in Christ and that we might be conformed to his image, that we might be more and more like him as we behold his glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, you'll find that the, the first two chapters of the book are rather depressing, rather dark. But as we come to chapter 3, we we've really finally come to a breath of good news after a rather depressing start. The first part of the book, Solomon really presents up to this point the perspective of life under the sun. He takes those first two chapters especially. To look at life lived apart from the Lord, apart from reference to God, and apart from an understanding of eternity. Life lived in the, in the sense that many people today live their life. Uh, materialists who believe that uh, the physical world is all that there is, uh, that what we can see, that what we can touch, that uh, what we can hold in our hands is, is all uh, that there is in reality. And there's nothing more out there. And Solomon, looking at life from that perspective, has searched for meaning and has concluded that there is none, that apart from the Lord, apart from life lived in relation to God, life is empty. It is filled with vanity and meaninglessness, like a a breath of vapor that is here and fades away. But now as we come to chapter 3, we see that Solomon begins to redirect our attention to a different way to understand the world, a better way. To understand the world and here we see that there is meaning and there is purpose that mankind has been created for something more something greater than just life in the here and now and god has placed eternity in man's heart and it's only as we understand that and as we understand our relationship to the lord and what we are created for that we've been created to have eternal fellowship with him that life makes sense that life becomes filled with purpose and meaning. Now, as Solomon begins to shift into this new direction, he begins this chapter with this beautiful poem. And uh, the second part of the text that we'll be looking at, uh, verses um, 9 through 15, is really Solomon's commentary on the poem, his explanation, his unpacking of what it means. Uh, some of you in the congregation, maybe uh, especially some of the folks who are older my age or older may remember this poem being quoted in the movie Footloose. That was my first exposure to Ecclesiastes 3. I think the the original version of the movie, I, I haven't even seen the new one. I don't know if they uh, use the poem in the new version, but the original version came out in 1984. I was uh, nine years old at the time, and uh, of course the movie is about a young teenage boy who moves with his family to the southwest somewhere, perhaps rural Texas and out in the boonies. And the town that the family moves to is dominated by a, a church and a minister who has convinced the town council to ban any activity that he perceives might be sinful. And So one of the things that the town council has banned is dancing. And Kevin Bacon makes the argument that uh, they want to hold a school dance, and he appears before the town council, and he quotes as part of his argument uh, from Ecclesiastes 3 that there is a time to dance. It's interesting how this poem is turned up in popular culture frequently. I think it speaks to just how enduring the truth that is contained here in God's word is. Something about this poem, these words that mankind can relate to and can say there's truth in this. In fact, this may be the first number one billboard hit that was ever written. Some of you may recall that uh, there was a band, The Birds, that wrote the hit song Turn, Turn, Turn back in 1965. And that song is almost entirely direct quotations from Ecclesiastes chapter three from this poem. And it went to number one on the billboard charts. And so Solomon, writing 3,000 years ago under the influence, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is perhaps the first number one billboard artist ever to have lived. Well, the poem speaks about the totality of human life, and Solomon uses a, a technique called a merism here at the beginning when he says that there is a time to be born and a time to die. He's taking two extremes and doing so in a way that that really covers all of the ground in between them and so there is a time to be born and a time to die and really what this poem is about is everything that takes place in between those two points in a person's life everything that takes place in a human being's existence the poem itself is seven verses long um, seven of course being the number of completion or perfection in the in the bible i think solomon is deliberately capturing that here this is Uh, expressing the fullness of the human experience, seven verses, 14 couplets, 14 pairings, and in each case, Solomon takes us through a different aspect of life and shows that there is a time for each of these contrasting things under heaven. Now, one of the things we want to note is that as Solomon is describing these things, none of the things that he mentions here uh, that there is a time for, none of these are inherently sinful in and of themselves. Solomon is not saying that there's on the one hand a time to sin, on, on the other hand a, a time to be righteous. He is, he is not saying, you know, on the one hand there's an appropriate time to rebel against the Lord and an appropriate time to serve the Lord, an appropriate time to embrace wickedness and an appropriate time to embrace righteousness. That's not what Solomon is getting at at all here. Of course, some of these things could be sinful. and In fact, probably all of them could be sinful in how we carry them out. For instance, as we think of a time for war, there are right reasons and wrong reasons why a nation might go to war. Uh, Those of you who have served in the military have studied these things, at, at least to some extent, the idea of just war theory. When is war justified? When it is not, We think about that in terms of a time to kill and a time to heal as well. There are just and right times, uh, Scripture teaches us, when it is appropriate to take human lives, and yet we are commanded, thou shalt not murder. There's a wrong time. So none of these are inherently sinful, but they can be sinful if we do them at the wrong time or in the wrong way. And of course, who establishes that? Well, what we see is that Solomon is getting at in this poem the idea that it is the lord who establishes the right times it is the lord who establishes when the time to be born is and when the time to plant comes and when the time to pluck up what is planted and so on there are several different ways that the lord uh, establishes these things a couple of different senses in which we can think about the lord establishing the right time for these things Uh, first we might think about god's sovereign rule over his creation we understand Of course, that God has sovereignly ordained everything that comes to pass. And so everything that happens in creation, God has planned it. God has laid out all of the times for everything that takes place in our lives. Uh, Turn with me over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 really lays this out beautifully, especially at the end. I'm going to read the first 16 verses of Psalm 139. Notice that last verse there especially. David as he's composing the psalm recognizes that every step he was going to take in his life, every experience that he would have, the Lord had planned it all ahead of time. God sovereignly knew the times that were coming in each moment of David's life. God had planned the time for David to be born. God had planned ahead of time the time when David would die. God sovereignly planned each of these things the moment of David's birth the moment of his death and he knows these things for each one of us for each one of us he has planned these things he knows the date of our birth he knew it long before it ever happened and he knows for each one of us the date when we will pass into the grave in fact in Ecclesiastes 8 Solomon comes back and he makes the case that the date of our death is fixed that ultimately there is nothing that we can do to change it that when the day that God has appointed comes, that will be the end of our mortal life here on earth. Now, that's not to say that we ought to just do whatever, whatever we want and not take any safety precautions. God often works through means, and it may well be our own stupidity that God uses as the means to take us from this earth. So we don't just take a fatalistic approach and throw our hands in the air and say, you know, whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and it uh, doesn't matter what we do because God works through means. But as Christians, we do ultimately recognize and understand that our lives are in his hands. The Lord has established when we will be born and when we will die. And in between, he has established the times for each activity in our lives. Solomon goes on uh, in verse three, or in verse two, the uh, end of verse two, he says, uh, there is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. I remember moving to Texas uh, about 17 years ago now, uh, coming across winter crops. That was something I grew up in in the north in Washington state and then went to seminary in Massachusetts. We didn't plant things in the winter, but uh, (laughs) driving over here uh, today, this morning, I I saw several fields that were freshly plowed and uh, winter wheat had had just been planted. And so there's uh, different times to plant here in texas than there are in other parts of the country of the country but of course the lord establishes all of these things he establishes uh, the times and the seasons and when the time comes to plant we we plant because that's what the lord has established and the plants grow and then the time for harvest comes and we pluck up what has been planted the lord has given us that regular pattern of seasons occurring until the return of christ Solomon goes on to say there is a time to kill and a time to heal. We recognize that Scripture does teach that there is an appropriate time to mete out the death penalty, capital punishment, when somebody has committed a capital crime and they've been justly sentenced to death. There is a time to kill. And yet, at the same time, there is a time to heal. When someone is injured or hurt, perhaps an innocent victim, what do we do? We take take them to the hospital. We come alongside of them. We bring them to the doctor, help them to have what they need to heal. As we see that, notice that God is not only sovereignly ruling providentially over our lives, but this poem is also expressing the the fact that God rules over us as the lawgiver. He not only sovereignly ordains what is to happen, but he also gives us direction as to when we are to carry out these things, many of these things. He has not only ordained what's going to happen, but he has told us what is right and wrong and when, for instance, it is right for us to kill and when it is right for us to heal. So the the poem demonstrates not only God's sovereign rule, but it also establishes that he is the one who has given us his commandments. He is the one who makes the rules, so to speak, for how we are to live. He is the one who has established right and wrong. And so there is a, a time to kill, a right time to kill, and there is a wrong time to kill time when killing is not appropriate, is not right, is not righteous. There's a time to heal, a right time, and a wrong time to heal. The poem goes on uh, to break, uh, mentions a time to break down and a time to build up. Uh, Driving uh, across I-20 here from Abilene, looking off to the side of the road every now and then, we uh, pass by a building that is decaying, that the roof has fallen out of, and Uh, that would probably be dangerous for anybody to go in. And so that's a good time to to tear down. And then once the building is torn down, of course, then uh, it can be rebuilt into something else, a time to build. And we certainly, uh, of course, saw much of that taking place as well as we came into the the, uh, Metroplex. He goes on, a time uh, to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Here I'm reminded of the book of James. James exhorts the church to weep and to mourn because of sin. And so as we consider our sinfulness, as we consider our guilt before God and our need for the grace and mercy of God, as we think about those things, that's not the time for laughter. It's not the time to take things lightly. It's a time for mourning and a time for weeping, a time for grief as we consider how we have transgressed the law of God. But then as we think about what Christ has done for us, how he has come and laid down his life so that we can receive forgiveness and mercy from God, that as we dwell upon what God has done to rectify that situation, as we think about our salvation, that is a time of laughter and a time of rejoicing, a time to dance as we ponder the grace that we have in Christ. Likewise, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The scripture says that we are to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, but also that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need, of course, as Christians to be careful to do those things at the right time. When a family among us is suffering, when a family is hurting, uh, we don't dance, we don't throw a party. We should come alongside of them and weep with them and mourn with them. But when a family is blessed by God and they are rejoicing, then we rejoice with them. It's the time to party and celebrate. It's the time to give thanks to the Lord and celebrate together what God has done in their lives. All things as God has established. Poem goes on, um, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Uh, think about uh, Solomon writing in the, the context of the land of Israel. Uh, in a time of war when enemies were coming against them, what, what did his father, King David, do? As a boy, he cast a stone at Goliath, right? Struck him and killed him in the name of the Lord to defend the Lord's honor and glory. But then when the war is done, what do you do with all the stones that have been cast in battle? You gather them back together. You build a wall. Clear your land of the stones that are going to get in the way of the plow so that you're able to grow food again goes on a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I think this is a lesson that every young man and young woman has to learn, uh, sometimes in difficult ways as they look forward to marriage and thinking about uh, the Lord bringing someone into their lives uh, to live with, to to spend their life with. And the Lord often teaches us great patience as we wait for that spouse to appear. And as we are waiting, that's a, a time to refrain from embracing. And then we meet that someone that the Lord has brought into our lives, and the wedding comes, and it's a time for embracing, a time for the two to come together as God has established. Verse six, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. It's interesting, uh, this one, I, I don't know about you, but I often find for me that the time to seek is right after I have lost something, right? Um when you're searching around for your car keys and you've misplaced them and you know that they're here somewhere, but you're not quite sure where you left them. Uh, But this this one's clarified by what comes immediately after, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Uh, I think it's interesting what Solomon is talking about here. The losing here is not an accidental losing. It's not misplacing of something, but rather a deliberate getting rid of something. It's a time to go through our garage and get rid of the things that have been sitting there for 20 years that we really haven't needed for the last 20 years and probably won't anytime soon. I think it speaks to the enduring wisdom that God gave Solomon, that even Solomon, writing 3,000 years ago, experienced that sense of there's a need to get rid of things, a time to keep and a time to cast away. It a time to tear and a time to sow. In the ancient world, of course, a time to tear would be a time of mourning. When the mourning and grief and and loss, when somebody has died, what did people do? They would rend their garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. But then when the time of grief has ended, it's time to sew. Uh, You could take those garments and sew them back up so that they'll be useful again. Or sew a new outfit so that you have something to wear other than sackcloth goes on a time to keep silence and a time to speak and again the epistle of james i think speaks very wisely about this james speaks about how we are to use our tongues in the right way and there's a right way and a wrong way for believers to speak the time to speak is when we are speaking out of love speaking out of humility speaking to build one another up speaking to edify one another When we can't do that, uh, if we aren't speaking out of love, uh, well, as our our mothers told us, it's better to say nothing at all. It's time to keep silent. It's time to not use our mouths, our tongues, in an inappropriate way, in an ungodly way, in a sinful way. Moving into verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate. Solomon in Proverbs 8.13 writes that the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And so there are appropriate things for believers to hate, Christians to hate. We are to hate evil. We are to hate things that are an abomination to the Lord. And yet we are to love. We are to love Christ. We are to love one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Even those neighbors who commit those sinful things, those deeds that we are to hate, we are to love the neighbor. And so there's a right way and a wrong way to do both of these things, a right time and a wrong time. And so it ends uh, with the the last line in verse 8, a time for war and a time for peace. I think Solomon here is perhaps speaking out of his own experience. Remember that his own father David was a man of war and that during the period of David's reign, that was a time of constant turmoil and conflict and war for the people of Israel. But under King Solomon's rule, the Lord gave the nation rest from their enemies. David had defeated all of the enemies under the Lord's providential care, and Solomon's reign was a time of peace, a time where the Lord blessed Israel with rest. So there's a a right time for war and a wrong time for war. Now Solomon has given us this beautiful picture of human life, and having given us this picture He then shows that God is both sovereignly ordaining everything that comes to pass, but he also shows that God is the lawgiver who establishes right and wrong. And he he begins to put man's uh, relationship to God before us in the following verses as he unpacks these things in, in verses 8 through 13 especially. He says in verses 9 and 10, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, it's a, a question that Solomon has asked before, and this this verse really gives, a, I think, a, a powerful uh, hint to what is going on in the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the two different perspectives that Solomon is exploring, that Solomon is considering in this book. It's a question that Solomon has asked before, back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 18... Solomon, exploring life from a very different perspective, writes this. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Vanity everything that we work for, everything that we labor for is going to ultimately be left to somebody else here and now. What? And Solomon argues, well, what's what's the point in working then? What's the point in laboring? If this world is all there is and everything that we accumulate is left to somebody else when we die, why why work at all? It's all meaningless. It's all vain. Uh, of course, we hope that our kids will take what we have and, and use it wisely and perhaps even build on on what we have made, but we don't know. And I think Solomon here is perhaps looking ahead and looking at his own children and thinking about what might take place after he dies. Of course, Solomon's son after him did not rule wisely. The kingdom was torn asunder and split. But now as we move into chapter 3, Solomon is asking the same question but he's looking at it from a completely different perspective looking at life lived in relationship to God and the answer of course is very different this really I think is showing us what Solomon is doing in this entire book because in chapter two he concludes work is meaningless toil is meaningless there's no point in any of this if we're just going to die and it's all going to go to somebody else and that's the end But he gives us a very different picture of the value of work in verse 10 of chapter 3. Here he says, I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then he goes on in verse 11 with these words. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Complete contrast, complete difference. To the vanity of life and the emptiness of life lived apart from relation to the Lord. Apart from God, there's vanity, there's emptiness, but life lived in relation to God, there's beauty. Everything is beautiful in, in its time. If we understand that God has given us this work to do, he's given us this toil to be busy with, then it becomes a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing, uh, work takes on meaning. Uh, it takes on value when we are working for the glory of God. In God's plan and God's sovereign will when we do the right things at the right time, God takes that and turns it into something beautiful, something wonderful. Now we're going to come back to that thought in just a minute, but notice what Solomon says next. Uh, he goes on to uh, really uh, think, say something that's that's key and fundamental for understanding this book. He says, also, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And here really is the heart of the reason that life apart from God is empty and is meaningless. We, we have within us, as, as creatures created in the image of God, we have a deep sense within us that God has placed us here that we have been made for something more, that we've been made for something eternal, that this world is not all that there is. Uh, Philip Breen, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, draws together a bunch of quotes from C.S. Lewis that I I think are really good. I'm going to read a few of them here. He says, No one has ever explained the implications of our longing for eternity better than C.S. Lewis, who said this. So this is C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, fraud, but rather earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. So we have this longing in our heart for something more, and it can never be filled by the things of this world. Lewis goes on, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find a place where all the beauty comes from. And he describes this longing as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. God has placed that in our hearts, and we are made for it, and yet we recognize that there are limitations. And Solomon goes on immediately after and says that, yes, we We have eternity in our hearts, and yet we can't see the whole plan. We can't see everything that God is doing. Uh, We can look back in history only so far uh, through our physical eyes. Uh, We can't understand things from the beginning to the end. Solomon says, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Only God is able to see the full scope. Only God is able to reveal to us what He is planning. We can't figure it out for ourselves. We can't understand what God is doing apart from him. Apart from him telling us. Apart from him revealing it to us. And so we need the word of God. We need scripture. We need God to speak and to explain and make known to us what he is doing so that we can understand how he is making all things beautiful. Solomon concludes this section in verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to men. Here Solomon says um, that God gives us this good gift as we live our lives in relation to him, as we live our lives in service to him, recognizing that God has made us for something more that the, the things of this world cease to be vain and cease to be empty and cease to be meaningless. We can take real pleasure in knowing that our loving God has given us good gifts. We can enjoy the food that we eat and drink and the labor that we do and take pleasure in it, uh, knowing that it is the work that God has given us, because we know that it serves a purpose. We know that we are living to glorify God. And Solomon finally speaks about this eternal work that God is doing in verses 14 and 15. And perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God has worked in such a way that creation itself calls us to honor him, to glorify him, to know him, and to recognize that he is God and that he is sovereign, so that we will fear him. Now, God's greatest work, I think, is demonstrated to us in this poem as as we think about what Solomon writes here in relation to what God is doing in creation, and especially the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Christ comes, as as we read in uh, Galatians 4, in the fullness of time. And he is the one who really fulfills these words that Solomon has written. He's the one who makes all things beautiful. He's the one who does all things perfectly. If Solomon here is saying that there is a right time and a right way to do each of these things, and there is a a wrong way, a, a sinful way, where do we see that? We see it in Christ and his perfect obedience. I want to take us back through the the poem uh, briefly and think how Christ fulfills these things, at least many of them. Again, uh, the poem begins, a time to be born. Paul writes in Galatians that Christ was born in the fullness of time at just the right moment, just the point in history where God had planned all along for Christ to take on a human nature and to come and to redeem a people for himself. He is born. He comes among us, Emmanuel, God with us the Son of God, born to be our Savior. Of course, the the verse goes on, though, a time to be born and a time to die. And Of course, we we know that Jesus' ultimate purpose in being born and taking on that human nature and coming into this world, he, he came in order to lay down his life, in order to die on the cross for the sins of his people. He was born to die. He was born for that purpose. In Acts 2, Paul declares or rather Peter, I'm sorry, Peter declares in his Pentecost sermon that God appointed that Christ should suffer for his people. In other words, Christ's suffering in his death, it, it wasn't an accident, it wasn't something that just worked out that way that happened to take place. God had planned it all ahead of time, a time for Jesus to come and die. Christ was sent in the world into the world to do that in order for those who believe in him to have salvation in him. we think about this poem, we need to recognize that we are guilty before God. God establishes a right time and a wrong time to do each of these things. And we haven't done these things at the right time. We haven't kept his commandments. We have not done the right things at the right time. We have sinned. We need Christ to come and die for us so that our sins might be forgiven. The promise is that Christ will bring us back into right relationship with God so that not only might we have eternity in our hearts, but that we might dwell with him for eternity. Think of Jesus in the the second part of verse 2, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. And here I'm reminded of a number of the parables that Jesus taught. Think of the parable of the sower. Jesus describes his own work as, as the work of planting, of sowing the seed the word of god being sown and what happens when it falls on the right soil when the soil receives it it grows up into a great harvest jesus is at work even now planting his word sowing but of course there is a time when he will come again and what is planted is blocked up we see his second coming described as a harvest the harvest of his elect being gathered into the barn. But of course we might think as well there of the parable of the wheat and tares. Remember the the parable of the farmer who went out and sowed his field and then his his neighbor who was his enemy came along behind him at night and scattered seeds of weeds that would grow up alongside the good plant. The farmer decides there's nothing at all to do except let it all grow together and then at harvest pluck it all up and separate it and divide the wheat and the tares. And so when Christ comes again, we see that great harvest, but it is a harvest not only of redemption for the elect entering into eternal glory, but it is a harvest of judgment as well. And The parable describes the tares as being cast into the fire. Similar vein in verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. We certainly see healing in Jesus' life. Uh, His ministry was a ministry of preaching, but it was also a ministry of miraculous healing. His words were... Often accompanied by signs and wonders, all of the sick and the infirm who were brought into his presence were healed by him. And yet, even for Christ, there is a time to kill as well. Thinking about that day of judgment when he returns again, Scripture speaks of those who are to be judged and condemned as experiencing the second death. There's an interesting passage as well. I'm going to turn briefly to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. If uh, you have questions about who this passage is talking about, I'll let you talk to your pastors after the the service. This is the passage concerning the man of lawlessness, and I'm not going to get into different understandings of who this guy is. Uh, But notice what it says in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his coming and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I think it's just interesting, especially in light of this poem, that this, uh, this um, passage speaks explicitly of, of Jesus killing the man of lawlessness at his coming when he returns for his church. And I'm not going to go through the entirety of the poem, the entirety of the list. I think we could apply each one of these in different ways to Jesus' work and ministry, and we see how he does all things beautifully, all things perfectly, at just the right time, in just the right way. But I want to uh, take down to the last three lines. Uh, The last three lines, starting in 7b. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Uh, Of course, Jesus spoke many times throughout his ministry. His ministry was primarily a speaking ministry. He came preaching the word, revealing the Father to us. He spoke and gave us the very word of God. Yet there was also a time when Jesus kept silent as he was on trial before Pilate like a sheep is silent before its shearers. Jesus, in humility, did not open his mouth to defend himself. He did not open his mouth to condemn what was being done or to argue for his own release. He willingly and silently suffered the shame and the scorn and the humiliation and the physical punishment of the cross, keeping his mouth silent, suffering and dying for his people. Verse 8 goes on, a time to love and a time to hate. And we see that in Jesus' life as well. Thinking again earlier of that verse that uh, I mentioned, Proverbs 8, 13, uh, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. We see in Jesus' life that he did hate evil with a holy hatred. Think of him overturning the temple, the tables uh, in the temple of the money changers and Jesus being filled with a, a righteous anger for how his father's house was being misused. Think of Jesus calling people to repentance and to turn away from their sin and being grieved by the the rebellion of Jerusalem, for instance. Yet we see that his life is a ministry of love for his people. Greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. Jesus comes out of love for us, desiring to serve rather than to be served and giving himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And the poem ends, concludes, a time for war and a time for peace. Scripture speaks about Jesus in both of these terms. The Son of God coming forth to wage a war. The mighty warrior who has stretched out his right arm of salvation. The Psalms especially speak of Jesus frequently in these sorts of terms. On the cross, a war is fought. Paul in Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus disarming the rulers and the principalities. In other words, by laying down his life on the cross, he has conquered and has defeated uh, his and our enemies. He's defeated Satan and his minions. He has defeated all of the forces of the world that wage war on our souls. The world, the flesh, the devil, he has conquered these things and defeated them. And in so doing, he has made peace. He comes as the Prince of Peace who makes peace between us and God, who reconciles us to God, who takes all of the wrath and curse of God that we deserved upon himself so that there's none left for us. We can be at peace with God and have an everlasting peace, an eternal peace, because the war has been won and it's over and done, this perfect work of Jesus. This perfect obedience, which is so beautifully highlighted by this poem, is credited to our account. We have not done all things well. We have not planted at the right time and plucked up at the right time. Often we have flipped those things around in our lives. We have killed when we should not kill. We have failed to heal when we should heal. We have broken down when we should build up. We have laughed when we should weep. We have danced when we should mourn. And we have mourned when we should be dancing. We have not done all things well. We have not done all things beautifully and perfectly. But in Christ, as we come to him by faith, God takes Jesus' righteousness and he gives it to us and we are clothed in his obedience and it is credited to our account. And now in Christ we are then called to follow him as as Robert taught in Sunday school this morning. Scripture says that he has made everything beautiful in its time and he begins to take our, our sinful and our broken lives and our frail and wicked lives and our lives of disobedience and rebellion against him and through the blood of Jesus he turns us into something beautiful by his grace and teaches us more and more to live in obedience to him and to serve him in love. And he calls us to follow Jesus as our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our beautiful Savior who has done all things perfectly. We thank you for his his life, his ministry, for his death, willingly enduring and suffering your wrath and your curse. We thank you for what this means for us, that we, through Jesus' life, through his death, through his resurrection, have been united with him and with you. That that eternity that we have received being created in your image, that you have placed in our hearts, we will spend, uh, Lord, at peace with you, in fellowship with you, before your face, before your presence. We thank you for all of these things, and we marvel at the beautiful work of our Savior. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.